Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, we thank you so much for the truths that we have been singing together and lifting up our voices. And thank you for enabling us. Thank you for your amazing grace that offers us this time together to lift up our praises to you. And now as we turn our attention, O oh God, to the printed word, the scriptures, I pray, Father, that you would speak to our hearts. Open up our eyes and our ears. Open up our minds to the truth, O oh God. We pray that your word will work powerfully among us today. We believe that it is not by might and not by human strength, but by your spirit, O oh God. And you have promised that where two or three are gathered, there you are in the midst. So we know you are here among us. We thank you for the, 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 the opportunity to lift up our praises to you. And now, Father, we pray that you would speak to us by your grace, that hearts might be changed, that lives might be challenged, that your beloved church might be strengthened and rejoice and celebrate the truth of what we know we have. And those who don't know your hearts are far from you might be drawn close to you today, O oh God, for I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, it is quite normal to, if you are not regular churchgoer, to find yourself in a church on a Sunday, whether it be Christmas or Easter, or to invite somebody maybe who hasn't been to church uh, to gather on an Easter Sunday. And normally it's the practice, of course, on an Easter Sunday to retell the story of Easter of Jesus' resurrection from the dead. And of course, when we do that, many people respond with, what an amazing story that is. And it's like another story that we might see at the theater or a story we might see on TV. It's just a quite an amazing story. But then we, on Monday or Tuesday or Wednesday, simply go on with our lives. Or sometimes on an Easter Sunday like this, we try to convince people of the truth of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. And so we show in the scriptures and we go through and we talk about the eyewitness accounts and, and how it's really, really true that Christ did rise from the dead. People who've maybe never heard that before or have heard it a couple of times say, okay, that sounds very convincing. And so this man, Jesus, rose from the dead. Okay, that's, that's quite something. I'll, I'll tuck that away in the back of my mind in case I ever need it someday. And I'm glad that Christianity is working for you. And, and that's great. And that's all that becomes of it. But today I want to uh, take a different approach. And I want to explain why Easter matters. Not just tell the story and not try to convince you that Christ rose from the grave, but I want to tell you why this story, why this incident in history really matters to you personally. Maybe you've heard the story before, and maybe you've heard the claims of Easter and the claims of this Christian message, but you're not certain why it really matters to you. I think that's really critical on a day like today, because... What I discovered as I was doing some research is that at last estimate, there are 4,200 different religions. So uh, that's somewhat bewildering. I mean, when you think about it, there are a lot of people who are claiming to have some sort of religious information. There are a lot of people who are claiming to 
to uh, tell the world what it should believe. There are a great number of options, and it's tempting to suggest that maybe it just ex- it's explained by the fact that our God is a God of variety. I mean, look at us. We're all different. We like different things. We look very differently. You go around the world, God's a great God of variety. In his creation itself, God is a God of variety. So maybe in this whole idea of religion, it really doesn't matter all that much because God is all about variety and everything's going to be fine and it'll all work out in the end. In fact, uh, maybe there's 4,201 religions because you might be sitting there this morning saying, I don't have any religion. Well, that's a religion in itself. Because by very definition, religion is defined this way, belief in and worship of a superhuman force, especially God or gods, or the pursuit of something of extreme importance. So if you say, I don't really have a religion, your religion is actually you. Because you're the most important thing about you. So everybody has a religion. The Easter message puts forth something very exclusive in its claim. There's an important key scripture text in the Bible that talks about the difference between religion and a life-changing connection with the God of the universe. And it has everything to do with this. It has to do with the fact that the God who is out there or up there, however you picture him, must be in you. The verse goes this way. Christ in you, the hope of glory. And when we're talking about the phrase, the hope of glory, we're talking about the glorious residence of God. We're talking about heaven. We're talking about the culmination of all things, what it means to be in the glory of God. So what that verse says is, if you are to have the hope of glory, you must have Christ in you. That's a very exclusive claim by Christianity. But it's also very inclusive. It's exclusive in that unless you have Christ, you have no hope of glory. Unless you have Christ in you, and we're going to talk about how could that even happen. Unless you have Christ in you, you have no hope of glory. That's the exclusive statement of Christianity. And all of the religions of the world must measure up to that statement. But it's very inclusive in the fact that it's globally available. This message is the message for every single person in every place in our world. So it's inclusive in that. It's not geared to race. It's not about tribes. It's not about geography. It's not about language. It's not about national identity. It's a message for people who are brilliant. It's a message for people who are simple. It's a message for people who are rich. It's a message for people who are poor. It's a message for every single person in the world today. that a life-changing connection can be had with God, but there is a way. And so I want to very simply break down uh, the message this morning in three parts. I want to tell you briefly what happened, how we even got to Easter, very briefly. I I want to tell you why it happened And then I want to tell you what can happen for you. It's a very simple message that I want to bring to you. 
And this is what happened. This is why Easter happened. God planned, from the scriptures we understand, that God planned to seek and to save what was lost into a world amassing all kinds of religions, presumably because people somehow all over the world in some way want to try to please God or please the gods. That, that's why religion is invented in the first place. But, invent, but religion is a, is, is a poor replacement for a relationship with the living God. And so we want to look at what this, how this happened. This is what happened. So into a world amassing religions, the living God stepped into history. We call this Christmas. We were here a few months ago talking about it. When God, who is spirit, took on flesh and came to live among us, the God of creation, and his name, when he took on flesh, is Jesus. God became flesh. In fact, in the scriptures, it tells us that, um, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law, that we might receive adoption to sonship, that we might be brought into the family of God, that we might have a connection, a close connection with the God of the universe. That's the Christmas story. And then for the next 30 approximate years, this Jesus lived a perfect sinless life among us. He showed us how it is possible for a human to live a fully devoted life to God. It is critically important that we understand that he lived a perfect, sinless, righteous life, fulfilling entirely and completely the law of God. I'm going to explain that a little bit later, but it is absolutely vital that we understand that, that Jesus, the Son of God, both fully, fully man and fully God, came and lived among us perfectly. And then after approximately 30 years into his life on a Friday, Jesus was crucified on a Roman cross, allegedly for opposing the religious establishment of the day. There was far more in it than that. Yes, he did oppose the religion that was replacing a relationship. But there was much more to that. He died and was placed in a tomb, and then he was raised to life on Sunday, the third day. That's the gospel. That's what we call the good news. In fact, in 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes, For what I received, I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the Scriptures, that he was buried, and that he was raised on the third day according to the Scriptures. So that's what happened. God came to live among us at Christmas, lived for about 30 years among us, was put on a cross and died and rose again. But the big question this morning, since we've heard that many times, is why? Why did he do that? Why does that matter to my life?
man who was made originally, man and woman made originally to connect with God, became disconnected at the very beginning by man-made religion. I'm going to take you now back even further than Christmas. Because in order to get the answer to the question of why it matters to you and me, why it matters to all of the people in the world, we have to go back to the very first of creation, the very first humans who were told how they could have an intimate relationship with the living God. He would be their God, and they would be dependent upon Him. And as Creator God, that makes perfect sense. And He made everything to provide for them in the Garden of Eden. It was filled with all kinds of trees that produced fruit that would nourish them because He would look after them if they depended upon Him. And in the process of making all of these trees, he said to the first man and the first woman, there is one tree that you must not eat from. It's called the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. It's a, a tree that uh, if you eat from it, you will be disobeying me and you will be choosing to live independently of me. There's a tree that would free them from God. And the horrible reality is that there were only two human beings on all the earth. And both of them made the same choice. We will choose the tree that frees us from God. And so they did. And that was the beginning of the first religion. The first man-made religion. A religion of independence from God. And in that choice to be independent of God in this man-made religion, when that happened, their relationship with God ended. Because God said, when you, if you choose to eat of that tree, you will surely die. And so they died in spirit. Their spirit died. Spiritually, they died. They became disconnected from God because of what they did. And it's called sin. The definition of sin is to, is to the agenda to oppose the will of God. The agenda to oppose the will of God. And so they became disconnected. And when they became disconnected, we inherited from that point forward as part of the human race a disconnection from God. That's why the Bible states in Ephesians 2, 1 and 3, for as for you, now personalize that. Put your name there. As for Rick, that's me in case you don't know me. As for Rick, you were dead in your transgressions and your sins because I personally chose an agenda in life to act against the will of God, as has everyone on the face of this planet. You were dead in your transgressions and sins. All of us also lived among them at one time. That's who all of us were. And some of us in here today might still be. Gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts, 
Like the rest, we were by nature children of wrath. So that's the state of humanity. Subject to capital punishment for high treason against the Lord of glory, the creator of all things. The wages of sin is death. Which means that every single baby that is born on our planet is born at odds with God by nature. That's what the Old Testament teaches us in Isaiah. We all, note that word, we all like sheep have gone astray. Each of us, without exception, has turned to our own way and the Lord has laid on him, meaning Jesus, prophesied the iniquity of us all. But all humans have a dis- an instinctive desire to somehow connect with God. That's the explanation for 4,200 different religions. There is within all of humanity some sort of innate desire to reach a relationship or some sort of connection or some sort of contact with God or the gods. And the reason that all of humanity has that innate instinct is because we've all been made in the image of God. And so there is within us this this desire to connect, but we connect in wrong ways or we attempt to connect with God in wrong ways. We bargain with God. We make religion. We try to get protection from God. We try to get provision from God. We try to be right with God, but we try to do it in our own way. The preferred and popular way, man's way, mankind's way, 4,199 of them, is to manufacture religion that depends upon self-effort. It depends upon me somehow trading my behavior or what I bring or what I do or how often I participate in the religion, somehow trading that for good behavior with God. That, that somehow, in my own way, I can manufacture enough good points that God will be fine with me and the relationship will somehow be restored. That somehow there's a dividing line that if I can just get to that with enough good things, that somehow I can step over the line and finally be related to God. Finally be in a relationship with God. Many of us use the comments like, well, I'm a really good person. I'm a pretty good person. Or I try to do the best that I can. There's a huge problem with that. In Isaiah 64, 6, all of us, and that means all of us who are trying to be good people, trying to do the best that we can, uh, trying to offer to God our religious rituals or hocus pocus or whatever it is, Throughout all of our globe, all of us have become like one who is unclean. And all our righteous acts are like filthy rags to God. We all shrivel up like a leaf and like the wind our sins sweep us away. That's a huge problem, isn't it? That here we are offering our best, our good behavior, our religion, our rituals... We're trading God, we think, for good behavior. 
Maybe I can get off the capital punishment thing with, with good behavior. But here we are. The Word of God says that God sees all of that effort as filthy rags to be disposed of. So how good is good enough to God? Isn't that the question that everybody's pursuing it through their religious rituals? What do I have to do so that I'll be okay with God or the gods or whoever there is out there? What is it that I have to do? How good do I have to be? How religious do I have to be? It's rather arrogant of us, really, when we think about it, to think that somehow we can piece off God, that we can buy Him off with our good behavior or our attempted good behavior while we ignore the way that He has told us. How cheaply do we think that we can pay God off? Perhaps we are ignorant of the extreme requirement facing us. In both the Old Testament and the New Testament of the Scriptures, there is a very provocative verse whereby God commands humanity to be holy because He is holy. You can translate that another way whereby God says, be perfect for I am perfect. You're, at, you're stating at this moment, let's pause right here. What are you telling me? When I ask the question, how good is good enough? What is the standard that will please God? And he responds, be perfect. Well, who of us can ever meet that? Who of us could even approach perfection? In other words, God's standard for pleasing him is 100% perfection. You say, well, wait a second. You can get into medical school with maybe 90% or 95%. Isn't that going to be good enough for God? No. God's standard is 100% perfection. To be perfect. So how can that happen? What's God's way? That's where the Easter story comes into effect. The sins of mankind cannot be fixed by man-made religion because we can't manufacture anything good enough. The repair in our life for a life lived in rebellion to God is, can happen in only one way. And God would find a way to bring us into his family. God has made a way people can connect with him forever. It's God's way. It's God's religion. There's nothing wrong with religion. Religion is fine once you've made the connection with God. And then your worship, your religion is toward him. But when... We saw before in Galatians 4, 4, but when the set time had fully come, God sent his son, born of a woman, born under the law, to redeem those under the law that we might receive adoption to sonship or brought into the family of God. That's God's way. For a relationship to happen, our sins, our rebellion, our man-made religions must be dealt with. 
The sentence of death on each of us for high treason against God must in some way be commuted for us. So how could that happen? Who could take care of this? God's justice has already been stated. The wages of sin is death. That sentence sits on all of us and no one can escape it by religion or by good behavior or by being the nicest person you can be. Whether you're a serial murderer or the very nicest person in all of Durham region, the sentence of death is on you for sins against Almighty God. But the Easter plan is this. How could God's, the question is, how could God's justice, in other words, the judgment on all of us for our sins, how could God's justice be taken care of and His mercy at the same time? Because God is both just and merciful. How could God save us from ourselves? How could God save us from this death penalty sentence? Do you remember I mentioned to you that this Jesus who came to live among us lived a perfect sinless life, lived perfectly righteous, fulfilled all of the law with perfection? He did that so that he could be God's plan, God's plan for our salvation, that the sinless Son of God could willingly and voluntarily take upon himself our punishment our death sentence, he could agree to go to the cross of Calvary to pay for our sins because as he was being crucified, he wasn't paying for the sins of himself. He never committed any sins. So therefore, he could be a substitute for all the people of the world and die for us, thereby meeting the just penalty of our sins. He became sin for us on the cross of Calvary. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. He himself bore our sins in his body on the cross so that we might die to sins and be able to live for righteousness. By his wounds, you have been healed, for you were like sheep going astray just as people are destined to die once and after that to face judgment so Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many and he will appear a second time not to bear sin but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him this is the amazing truth of what Jesus has done for us he went to a different tree that would free us from ourselves we ate of the tree that would free us from God. Jesus Christ went to the tree that would free us from ourselves, that we might be in connection with the living God forever. This is the amazing truth, that we could live a perfectly righteous and holy life in Christ Jesus. And this makes us eligible for that, but not automatic. 
What Jesus did on the cross makes every human being in this world eligible for his salvation. There is nothing more that needs to be done. The sins of the world have been paid for. So we're all eligible, but it doesn't make it automatic. You see, here's what happened. We need to understand from the very first verse we looked at, Christ in you, the hope of glory, that somehow in all of this truth, the transaction needs to be made whereby the Christ of the cross moves into our lives. And Jesus said this to his disciples. I will ask the Father in John 14. I will ask the Father and he will give you another counselor to be with you forever. He was talking to his disciples about his pending crucifixion, his death and his resurrection, and he would leave and go to heaven to be with the Father. And he promised them this, I will give you another counselor to be with you forever. The Spirit of truth, the Holy Spirit. The world cannot accept him because it neither sees him nor knows him, but you know him for he lives with you and will be in you. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. Before long, the world will not see me anymore, but you will see me. And they're wondering, how will we see you? Because I live, you also will live. On that day, you will realize that I am in my Father and you are in me, and I am in you. Loved ones, this is the amazing truth that changes our lives forever. The standard of God is perfection, is righteousness. His holy standard for those who are in his family and who will be with him forever, is perfection. What Christ has promised is that when he was crucified and died and rose again and went into heaven, he sent the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of Christ, to move into people's lives who by faith would believe in him. And when Christ moves into your life, the perfection of God has now moved in. And so when God sees you and sets the standard of perfect and holy 100%, those who have Christ in them are viewed by God as meeting the standard that's required. Nothing that we could do, nothing, it's all been done for us. All that's left for us to do is to welcome it, welcome him into our life, to believe that this is true and to welcome him into our life. God will give you the free gift of his righteousness, the indwelling spirit of Christ. How am I to become perfect before God? I receive Christ as my savior. For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. First to the Jew, 
then to the Gentile. For in, listen to this, for in the gospel, the righteousness of God is revealed. A righteousness that is by faith from first to last, just as it is written, the righteous will live by faith. Beloved, the truth of the matter is that by faith, the righteous will live. There is no other way. That, that promise works in a circle. The righteous will live by faith. By faith, the righteous will live. It's an amazing truth. It's how we meet the standard that Christ has required of us. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not from yourselves. This is not from all 4,000 religions. This is not from man-made religion. This is not from good behavior. This is not from being the nicest or best person in the Durham region. It is a gift of God. Not by works. Not by trading anything for, to God so that no one could boast. Yet to all who received him... To them who believed in his name, he gave the right to become the children of God. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him would not perish but have eternal life. For if by the trespass of one man death reigned through the, that one man, Adam, the first man, how much more will those who receive God's abundant provision of grace, Christ Jesus, and of the gift of righteousness that comes with him, reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Christ is the culmination of the law so that there may be righteousness for everyone who believes. Beloved, there's a tremendous truth of what Christ has done for us, what he promises us. In Romans chapter 3, verse 20, Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. There's nothing that you and I can do in our own strength, no matter how nice we are, no matter how good we are, no matter how diligent we are. There is nothing we can do in our own strength to be granted the righteousness of God. Rather, through the law, we simply become conscious of the fact that we fall short of the glory of God, that we are sinners. But now, because of Easter, a righteousness from God apart from law has been made known to which the law and the prophets testify. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ to all who believe. The good news is this. That standard of excellence, perfection, is yours if you embrace Christ Jesus by faith. Now, does that mean now that you're going to live your life forever perfectly? No. Anyone who says they are, can do that or is doing that is a liar and the truth is not in them. But all of our past sins, all of our present sins, and all of our future sins to those who are in Christ Jesus are hidden under the blood of Jesus Christ so that God the Father sees them no more and we are forgiven. That's the message. We are viewed every time the Father looks at us as if we have never sinned. We are viewed in perfection, in the perfection of Christ our Savior. What a glorious Easter message that is. So from this point forward, we are able to become the righteousness. We are the righteousness of Christ. That's the good news. So this then, 
is your hope of glory. If you are interested in living forever, you must have Christ in you. Christ in you, the hope of glory. It's a free gift offered to us. How does Christ in you happen as we conclude? That's the, the key question. How does Christ in you happen? How does Christ in me happen? Well, it happens, first of all, by a conviction that is placed in our hearts by the Holy Spirit of God himself, a conviction of guilt. In John chapter 16 and verse 8, Jesus was teaching again, and he said this in reference to the Holy Spirit. When he comes, he will convict the world of guilt in regard to sin and righteousness in the fact that we are falling short of God's righteousness and of judgment that the sentence of death hangs on our heads. This conviction is brought to us. How can we first come to know Christ? We first must come to terms with a conviction of guilt that the Holy Spirit lays on our hearts. That we need this. That we have fallen short. Yes, I have fallen short. Yes, I have missed the mark. Yes, I have been living, living with an agenda to rebel against God. Yes, I have been living according to the religion of me. And the Holy Spirit, not me, I can't speak this conviction to you. The Holy Spirit must bring this conviction into your heart. I stand guilty before a living, holy, perfect God who loves me. And I've rejected him all of my life. I've tried to keep him away. I've tried to live independently. I've tried to live my way. Yes, it's true. Conviction of guilt of sin. And secondly, we must believe that what I have just shared with you is true. We must believe it is true. For God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whosoever would believe in him, believe that this is true, would not perish but have everlasting life. This belief is to make it your own. It's to receive it. It's to welcome it. It's to believe it. It's to live by it. It's to take Jesus as your Savior and believe him to be true and the only way. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but by me. All of those religions, they're not bringing you to the Father. Only I can bring you to the Father. I'm the one who rose from the grave. I'm the one who lived a perfect, sinless life. I'm the son of God. I'm the one who's come from heaven. I know how to get there. You have to believe that. I'm not ashamed of the good news because it is the power of God for everyone, for the salvation of everyone who believes, rich or poor, brilliant or simple, language regardless, from every tongue, every language, every tribe. And if you believe Jesus Christ is who he claims to be, the God of the universe, who has come to forgive you of your sins, he will forgive you of your sins. And he will move into your life. And he will make you righteous. And the hope of glory is yours. So you must face the conviction of your guilt 
before God. You must believe in the truth. And finally, it is required that there is an act of the will on what you believe. It is not good enough to say this is an interesting story once again at Easter. And I'll put it on all my collections of interesting stories. In fact, I even believe it happened. There must be an act of the will that chooses to do something about what you claim now to believe. And the Bible puts it this way. If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, in other words, that Jesus is God, and believe in your heart that God has raised him from the grave, you will be saved. As an act of the will, you are required to believe this. So what should you do? You must confess with your mouth. You must state that Jesus is Lord, that he is God. And you'll get many chances to do that if this is the truth of your heart, including today. And you must believe that God has raised him from the dead, that he is a living God, a living Savior, that this message is living and true, and it is the exclusive truth. But as a first act of the will, in addition to this confession of your, of, of your beliefs, is to make some sort of symbolic gesture that you're in. Count me in. The Spirit of God is convicting my heart. I, I believe this is true. But as an act of the will... I must make some sort of gesture that says, I'm in, count me in. Oh God, count me into your family. Can I suggest what might be appropriate today? As a demonstration to let me know and everyone else who's here know that you're actually in, that you want to be in. As we do our closing song, as we stand together and we sing our closing song together, I'm going to invite you to leave wherever you are all over this building and as a, a gesture of I'm in, symbolically leaving your old life of unbelief and claiming that you now believe. Leave your old life where it is in the chair, wherever you are, and you join me at the front of this place. I know that's tough to do. But the Word of God says, if you confess with your mouth, with action, and believe in your heart, you will be saved. So as a symbolic gesture, you come forward, and I will connect you with someone who will take you to another room. They'll pray with you, and give you some literature and, and send you on your way knowing that now you have received Christ in you, the hope of glory. You won't have to wonder if you're going to heaven when you die because if you have Christ in you, you have the hope of glory. It's a guarantee. Never to be taken away from you. 
So I'm going to invite you all to stand now as we join together. I'm going to pray and then Pastor Steve is going to lead us in a closing song together. And you come forward if God is speaking to your heart. Maybe you've been hanging out in religion or hanging out with us for years and years. But today for the first time you realize because the Spirit of God is challenging you, you, you're not in. You've never been in. You've just been listening to the stories filing them back and saying these are interesting stories and you go home on Monday and nothing's that different at all. But you've never connected relationally with Christ. You don't have Christ in you, therefore you don't have the hope of glory. You might have been hanging out with us for years, but today you're saying, I'm in. Count me in. I get it. Or maybe this is the very first time you've ever been here or maybe the second or third time. But you get it. You understand. God is talking to you. How do you know if God is talking to you? Well, I'll tell you how it happened for me. My heart started beating a mile a minute. It was like it was pounding right out of my chest. It was going to come right out of my chest because I knew, I knew God was speaking to me. I I had no other explanation. It, It just knew everything inside of me was telling me, you need to do this. You need to, you need to get in on this. This is too good to pass up. And so I did. And I've never regretted that decision. It's not automatic. The truth has to become your truth by faith. Let me pray and then you come forward while we're singing. Father, I pray this morning and thank you for your truth, the salvation truth. How can a man or a woman know for sure that they know the living God and that you know them? It is Christ in us, the hope of glory. That's the gift of Easter celebration. That Jesus has done it all. There's nothing left for us to do except receive it and welcome it. Welcome this gift, Lord God. Not by might, not by strength, not by the stammering words of a pathetic human being, but by your spirit, O God. Would you reach into the hearts of those who are lost today and bring them to yourself. For Jesus' sake, amen. Amen and amen. This redemption story continues on and still is the power of God to save people for all eternity. Let's pray together. Our Father and our God, thank you for this great redemption story that the God of the universe would love us enough while we were yet sinners. Christ died for us the righteous for the unrighteous, that we might inherit the righteousness of God through Christ Jesus by faith. Oh God, thank you for the truth. Thank you for the gospel. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It is the power of God under the salvation to them that believe for everyone in this world. Oh God, thank you for those who've responded this day. Thank you that the invitation is open, that while we draw breath, The saving God draws us to himself, welcomes us to himself. So, Father, we thank you and we praise you for Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior, the living Savior, the living God who brings to us a living relationship with him that lasts throughout all of eternity called eternal life. So we thank you and praise you in Jesus' name and for his sake. Amen. Amen. Amen.